good afternoon. Uh, today, I just want to talk to you all about, uh, introduce to you all um, a few of our guests today for our uh, conversation regarding COVID-19 and where we are from a year later. So today, I would like to introduce you all to our guests for today. Uh, we have Dr. Izawani, who is from Aaron E. Henry Community Health Center, and Dr. Hersey Davis Sullivan, Mississippi Medical and Surgical Association. Welcome, and thank you all for joining today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, so we have a lot to talk about. Um, as we all know, COVID-19 really affected our country and everyone as a whole about a year ago. And in 2019, when we entered getting ready for 2020, all of us were excited. We all had all of our 2020 resolutions and all the things we would do. And no one, I don't think anyone anticipated us going through a pandemic for 2020. So over a year now has passed and a lot has changed. So what we knew as norm is different and what we experience today is much different than we did in the past. So I would like to start out with a, a question, Dr. Uh, Izawani. What do you know about the virus now that you didn't know a year ago? All right. Um, like you said, last year was really a, a learning curve for a lot of us. Um, COVID, um, a year ago, about this time, there's a lot of uncertainty. We didn't know how exactly the vaccine was transmitted from one person to another. Uh, we didn't know what groups were being affected. Uh, it was just a cross board. So over the year, what we have learned is we know that the vaccines don't discriminate. Uh, that's something that we've learned. Um, pays no attention to race, color, or creed. Um, also, um, we've been able to actually, what's more pertinent now is uh, discover how it moves from one person to another and the things that we can do to protect ourselves and prevent that transmission. I think those are the key things that I know now, um, the advent of the vaccines and uh, the drugs that, therapeutic drugs that we're using. Okay. Dr. Uh, Sullivan, would you like to add anything new that you've learned or experienced uh, since last year and today? I think the thing that stands out for me, along with what Dr. Aswani has mentioned, was the fact that this is truly a novel virus. And by that, the, the term novel implies or indicates something new, something sort of extraordinary and out of the realm of the norm, uh, something that we were not accustomed to managing. Although we are familiar with coronaviruses in general, this particular uh, strain of the coronavirus is novel in so many ways in that it impacts individuals in the short term as well as in the long term, which is something that we've learned over the course of the last year. Um, it doesn't just come and once you're done with it, it's done. We're learning now that people are having uh, long-term sequelae from this virus and they're, and they're being called long haulers as a result of that. Yeah, so as you, you both have mentioned, we have truly had a learning curve even in our medical professional trajectory. We've had to actually 
think about things a little differently. Um, when we think about our patient populations, uh, and especially when it comes to communities of color, and how have you seen the impact of COVID-19, Dr. Sullivan? Uh, and can you explain uh, what you're seeing among the community that you serve? It has definitely played that sort of role in my in my patient population and in the community that I care for. What I mean by that, I've seen people of varying ages, of varying socioeconomic standing, of varying education levels with similar comorbidities, those being hypertension, obesity, diabetes, dyslipidemia, uh, COPD. I've seen those individuals, uh, people of color, having more negative impacts from this virus once they contract it versus other groups having milder uh, forms of the virus and sort of getting over it more rapidly. Uh, individuals in my patient population have oftentimes, once they get it, uh, if death is not the ultimate outcome to the virus, I notice that they're having a more difficult time moving past the symptomatology. Well, just to kind of piggyback on what you said, I, I think that that is so, um, it shows also in the data that, that we've seen too, that Black, especially here in Mississippi, have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. So as some of those inequities of the social determinants and things that you mentioned, such as, you know, socioeconomic status, you know, wages, um, you know, poverty, uh, and also having that history, as you mentioned, of those chronic conditions and healthcare conditions. Um, what do you think, uh, Dr. Iziwane, about access? Um, there is some literature that supports that there are issues with possibly access to healthcare, it, that this may also have played a role in the disproportional portions of COVID-19. Uh, yes, uh, and, and I agree wholeheartedly with uh, what uh, what has been said um, concerning the um, health inequities forming the backbone. I think that one thing that we learned was that um, this disproportionate um, uh, scenario within communities of color and others uh, highlights the um, background pre-existent um, inequities that are that, that are that are found in these communities. Uh, this COVID-19 just amplified what has been there prior to this time. And, and that's what we're seeing now. And um, in looking through the social determinants of health, coming down to access to healthcare, um, we know um, that access has played a major issue in uh, getting care here to communities of color. Um, really talking about whether it's the therapeutics or even as we'll be talking about the vaccines, uh, supply uh, has been a challenge. Um, and that once that challenge was overcome, we talk about the number of healthcare, number of spots where people can access this care within these communities. Uh, that's uh, it's a, it's a it's a lower fraction of what you find um, in the city centers and what's available to other um, individuals. So. Access has been huge. Uh, it has been a huge constraint um, for people of color, uh, especially the elderly, the homebound, and go on and on as to many layers to which of these access has, uh, has provided uh, a sort of a, a, a big point in 
separating, causing that separation between uh, favorable outcomes and more uh, more devastating outcomes, as uh, Dr. Hersey Sullivan had said earlier. I think, and I'd like to add to that, you know, when we first began this process, dispelling the myths that people had about this virus, you know, there were several myths out there. Black people don't get this virus. It's only in this community. It only affects this age group. Uh, there were a lot of things that we had to, a lot of layers we had to peel back uh, before we could actually get to the heart of the matter in terms of managing the disease in our communities, uh, educating people, informing them about the truth, allowing them to hear the science and know that that is how we should proceed in terms of managing this disease process. Thank you for those comments. And, and those are also true. We, there was so much information that was misinformation. It was inaccurate. It was not medically uh, accurate information embedded neither in science. And uh, so now, you know, we're seeing more of this information come forward. Um, with more information, um, do the two of you, and I, I'll, I'll let, um, either of you take the lead on this, uh, which do you think now that we have more of the medically accurate information coming across and multiple media streams, we're hearing more about the virus and the vaccines on the radio. We're hearing them now in social media platforms from trusted individuals within communities. Uh, do you think that having these community uh, spokespersons and uh, now seeing more of our community-based organizations and faith-based organizations and workplaces coming forth to really uh, validate uh, and, and share. And uh, I know here in Mississippi, we had the group of the black uh, pastors who were vaccinated. And do you think this plays a role in, in showing individuals that it's okay? Uh, you know, what are your perceptions around uh, utilizing these figures that are trusted in the community uh, to really get the message out? I know for me, initially, uh, when the information about the vaccine being becoming available uh, was, we were made aware of that, I was hesitant to get the vaccine. So I did due diligence in terms of researching and reading and talking to my colleagues. Our organization, Mississippi Medical and Surgical Association, had a Zoom meeting with the um, lead researcher for the Pfizer vaccine. And we had an opportunity to ask him questions one-on-one -on -one that our patients had asked us. And those questions that we ourselves had, considering the history of vaccination in this country and considering the things that had happened to African-Americans in this country and in, the, and in these communities as it relates to testing and vaccination. So it allowed us to become better educated. It allowed me to become better educated and allowed me to become more familiar uh, with what I needed to know to make a choice. And once I understood more clearly the science, how they were able to come up with a vaccine so rapidly relative to how we provided vaccines in the past and how the genomics were already in place from China 
in how the technique of messenger RNA had actually been studied previously with the Zika virus, I came to understand how the rapidity or how rapidly they were able to come up with the vaccine that we have, the vaccines that we have now using messenger RNA had to do with science all the time and that it just didn't start in December or in that, that November sector time, they had actually had various parts of this process in place before we got to the vaccine stage. So when they were able to put those things together more quickly than usual, and I understood that, I felt greater ease with not only taking the vaccine, but recommending it to my family as well as my patients. Uh, uh, yes, uh, so I think we cannot understand, overemphasize um, the issue of um, what Dr. Sullivan has just mentioned, because a major part of the hesitancy for most people is the thought that the vaccine was rapidly produced, um, a number of integrity checks were missed, and that could possibly translate to um, future side effects that we haven't really studied. And uh, letting people know that the technology for this vaccine, it started, it's a long time ago. Actually, mRNA, the first time mRNA was injected into a live subject, into a, first was in 1990, a paper was written um, about mRNA being able to, RNA and DNA being able to produce proteins in a rat. And from 1990, um, that was the first time. So that's, that's about 30 years ago. And then that was translated into a lot of work went into it, just like every other thing. By 2005, able to kind of translate that into humans, but it was still not a perfect technology. And it kept on moving in spurts and dashes. And like Dr. Sullivan said, we had actually gotten into a stage where we were already using it in trials for the Zika virus, for a H1N1 virus um, between 2017 and 2018, 2019. So it was already in play before the coronavirus hit. And so the coronavirus just came and that just kind of brought it across the finishing line as uh, some of my colleagues might do. And so it's important for people to know that this was not something that started in December and was over two months. It was already being tested prior to this pandemic. And this pandemic just brought up a perfect storm, to say, uh, of, of conditions for it to, to come to, to fruition. Uh, and also to point out, which is important, because once you're talking about how rapid it is, you talk about the technology had already been there. But what actually the operation warp speed that uh, uh, the previous administration kind of uh, engineered uh, funneled in a lot of um, a lot of resources to kind of facilitate it and fast track the production. So it, we must be able to state that to people because once you start to understand that this wasn't just something that happened uh, recently, uh, then you become you become more at ease with the technology and with um, uh, the potential that it that it holds. And the other thing I wanted to touch was uh, what you had said, stated earlier. I think that it is such a powerful imagery when you see uh, people of influence in the community, whether it's the pastors or leaders that people identify with, that people look up to, the imagery of them taking the vaccines and really being spokespeople for um, getting vaccines. I think that goes a long way in um, 
in causing people to have a rethink and overcome their hesitancy and overcome uh, the, the, the thoughts of uh, inhibition that they have concerning taking this vaccine. So those are things that we can do and are important to help us get um, more people, bring them more to the table to get the shot and take the vaccine. So um, those collaborations have been uh, really crucial and uh, we'll continue to pursue them uh, uh, to, uh, to better get into the community because um, one other thing is it's not, there is no, um, these messaging has to be individualized because the reason why person A might not want to get the va vaccine is sometimes in my practice I've seen is different from person B. Some people think, oh, the vaccine is going to affect my fertility. Some people think, oh, it's um, it's a, this a side effect going on in the future. And some people don't know what to think. So really having that one-to-one -one interaction with people and getting to know what their, um, what their problems and their challenges are, it's helpful. And uh, who better to... To, to get across to them than people that they trust, people within their community, people of influence, their pastors, and people that they get to see and they can open up to. Thank you. That is that is all great, great information. And it's so important that we understand the power of sharing um, this medically accurate information and empowering others with information. And you said something about the information being um, personal or one-on-one -on -one sometimes that it has to be basically customized for different populations. And so as we know, as, as health providers and public health practitioners, it's important uh, to make sure that that information is culturally relevant, uh, that is actually, you know, on the level of the individuals that we're, we're speaking to, that they clearly understand what's there and that it, it actually speaks to a lot of the questions. And one of the questions, things you brought up was about infertility, which is one of the questions that uh, had come up one time in a, a forum that we were talking about the vaccination. People wanted to know, would they have any infertility issues after receiving the vaccine? And we know that answer is, is no. I, the other question I want to throw out there is that someone, because when we start talking about messenger RNA and DNA and the virus, uh, the, the vaccine, uh, another question I would like for us to kind of dispel some of these questions while we're on here and who better to do it than the experts we have here. One of those questions was, will the vaccine alter or change my DNA? Will it make me a different um, person or in the structure of my DNA? So I'll let either of you take that question. As it, as it the science indicates, the messenger RNA actually gets into not the, the, the nucleus, which is where the DNA is made or synthesized in the cell. It doesn't even get to the nucleus. It's in the outer portion, what we call the cytoplasm. When the uh, vaccine gets in there, in the cytoplasm, not in the nucleus, where the DNA is replicated or made, uh, it's actually degraded in one to two days. When we talk about the Pfizer and or the Moderna vaccine, um, the messenger RNA is actually in a small nanoparticle, a lipid nanoparticle that once injected in the body gets again into the cytoplasm, not in the nucleus. So it has nothing to do with altering your DNA. The body actually degrades that uh, process in about one to two days. So it's not even sitting around in your body. 
once the body has been made aware of this foreign uh, entity, then the body immediately starts to make antibodies. So it already has the information it needs in that one to two day process in place that says, we need to make antibodies to fight this foreign process off. So you've already begun to make antibodies immediately, but within one to two days, that chemical, that process has been degraded or destroyed by the body. Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you so okay. much. And, and so, Dr. Izawani, you, you want to say something, add something to that? Yes. Um, okay. So, so one one way of one way of um, looking at this is like uh, what Dr. Sullivan is saying is, um, imagine so a cell. One way of, of of imagining how a cell is is if you have a, a boil an egg, hard boiled egg. So you have the, the 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 yolk, the yellow stuff that's in the center, and then you have the albumin, the outside, the white the white of the egg and the yellow of the egg, right? So what she's saying is that. Once they, it's inside the yellow of the egg that you, most of your, that's where your DNA sits. That's where the decisions are made. And that's where, so to change your DNA, you have to get into the yellow part of the egg to um, really change whatever happens. But what the vaccine does is the vaccine doesn't get into the yellow part of the egg. If you're thinking about it as an egg, it stays in the white. And that's where you produce, uh, just it. That's, that's where it stays and that's where it does what it does. Um, another way to look at it is if you have an apartment, you have the master, the bedroom, and then you have um, the living area with the dining section. So the virus, it's kind of like a, me a messenger that comes into the house, stays in the kitchen, does what it does, cooks you a meal, and then leaves. It never goes into the bedroom. The bedroom is where your DNA sits. The bedroom is where you can change stuff that alters the whole cell. So it never goes into the innermost sanctum of your cell to be able to change it. So that's why we know we cannot affect, uh, cannot change your DNA, cannot make anything like that. And it doesn't, uh, the second thing she was trying to say is it doesn't last long. So it stays in the outer part and before long, your body recognizes, oh, this is a visitor, this is a stranger and kicks it out. So it doesn't even have enough time to break into the main room. So um, we shouldn't, they, they should, it's you, you shouldn't worry about it getting and changing the DNA. That's not the way that that works. Um, so just to kind of re-emphasize that, that it doesn't get into where your DNA sits. Um, it, it just, and it lasts for a very short period of time um, outside before the body deals with it and sends it away. So we shouldn't be afraid of um, it changing us into uh, something else. And, and that, Dr. Iswani, that's when we're talking about that we're talking about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine we are we are also fortunate enough to have the J&J &J vaccine which is a different type of vaccination system it actually does use what we call a viral vector or it uses an inactivated virus to carry the vaccine uh, into the body, which then gets into the, a similar area of the cell. However, that virus, again, is inactivated, meaning it doesn't have any significant power once it gets into the body. It's just a way of getting the vaccine into the body and into the cell. Now, this particular virus with the J&J &J 
vaccine that has been inactivated is an adenovirus. An adenovirus is the type of virus that generally causes colds. You know, you get a little upper respiratory infection, sniffles, et cetera, et cetera. You get a little cold. That's typically caused by an adenovirus. And that type of virus, they needed a way to get the vaccine in so that it didn't damage the cell, damage the individual. And this inactivated virus, not live virus, this inactivated virus is used as sort of the envelope to carry the virus into the cell but it doesn't have any negative impact on the body. That's just the type of system that J&J has used to get the vaccine into the cell so that you know that there is a difference in terms of those two types of vaccination systems. The messenger RNA with Pfizer and Moderna and the uh, adenovirus vector uh, with the J&J vaccine. Now we will have a quick commercial break. The Our Voice, Our Votes report centers the lives of those who have been directly impacted by Mississippi's criminal legal system. The report itself is an interrogation of our processes and a challenge to not only reevaluate those processes, but to change them and to make those changes clear and accessible. This report is the blueprint for expanding voting access in Mississippi, a roadmap to restoration and justice. Join us because at the launching of this report, the real work begins. Elections aren't about the candidates. They're about you. You can have a say in what happens in your city, your community, your family. You have a personal stake in the upcoming elections. In this year's elections, the municipal races are on the ballot. The people who make decisions for your city or town is determined by your vote. Remember, your vote is your voice. Cast your ballot and let your voice be heard. To learn more about the upcoming municipal elections, visit onevoicems.org. Okay, so thank you all for just kind of uh, just sharing the differences because I think that's so important for everyone to know the difference between the three vaccines that we have available. Um, because now uh, we do have three vaccines and they are different. And so it's important that they know the difference between the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccination. Although the Pfizer and Moderna, as, as both of you stated, they basically work the same way. The Johnson & Johnson has a different mechanism or action in which it does the job that it does. But there's also another big difference between the two. Pfizer, the three, Pfizer and Moderna are two vaccinations. And so there are two um, uh, injections, whereas Johnson & Johnson is one. And so I really want to discuss the, the importance um, of individuals coming back that have taken the Pfizer and the Moderna, having that one dose, because you talked about once that 
first vaccine comes in, it then sees that as foreign, you know, we call that our immune response. You know, that's our body, you know, recognizing and getting ready to fight off something there. And so then the importance of those antibodies, but why it's so important for them to come back for that second vaccine. So just because they receive, someone receives the first one, not to think uh, of Pfizer and Moderna, I'm done, I'm good. Because we want make sure that individuals understand it's important to come back to receive that second vaccine so that we can be fully vaccinated with Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, just to give a little data before you answer that question, we know that there is a decrease right now of individuals receiving their second dosages. So I really want to make sure that we emphasize to listeners the importance of coming back. So I'll leave either one of you to begin uh, the plea of coming back and why it's so important. Uh, like you have clearly stated, um, uh, most vaccinations, uh, this the Moderna and the Pfizer are two dose vaccinations as opposed to Johnson & Johnson is one dose vaccinations. Now, first of all, the concept of having multiple vaccinations for the same, to protect against the same disease is not new. It's not novel. We do that in kids, whether it's um, the DTAB, the tetanus vaccines, whether it's the measles, the mumps, rubella, chickenpox, all those vaccines, HPV and hepatitis, all those vaccines are multiple dose series vaccines. And it's really simple. It takes the body a while to really, because um, the whole concept of vaccines is to allow the body recognize um, foreign the, the, the disease as foreign and attack it in quick fashion. So it takes the body a while to really understand and recognize it as it should. So you get the first dose and the body begins to understand, okay, this is how the vaccine looks. This is how the vaccine is presented. And um, you need a second dose to be able to, to, to get that immune response to the level that gives you the maximum efficacy from the trials that we know. Uh, we know that Moderna and Pfizer had uh, over 94% efficacy in their trials. And so trying to um, get back to that, which was reproduced, reproducing those um, results from the trials is the reason why we need to have those, um, the second dose. The first dose will give you some immunity, but not near enough what you will get with having the complete series. And uh, the real, uh, looking at the devastation that uh, COVID has, um, it's not something you'd want to take that chance. I would want to set myself up for success um, by making it um, as clear as possible and, uh, and, and having the highest possible level of immunity that I can gather uh, against this disease. So uh, to summary is it's really important to get both of them, to get your immunity to where it should be. And um, we shouldn't um, turn back from having the two shots. I was just going to say that it's like supercharging it you know that first shot sort of says go ahead and start making them but then when you get the second vaccine it really revs up your immune response and you and then you begin to make even more uh antibodies and you're better prepared as dr swani said you're better prepared to fight off the virus although the j and j vaccine is a single vaccine you do uh the studies have shown that you get 73 to 74 percent uh, efficacy with that particular vaccine, which I absolutely believe is better than nothing. Um, however, with the Moderna and the Pfizer providing 94, 95% of efficacy that says 
that that two vaccine regimen uh, can create a better situation for you and your health in terms of fighting off this virus. So it makes all the sense in the world to do it the way it was initially designed to provide you the best possible care in this case. Thank you all. So, so now let's kind of shift. We're going to believe that we have this great utopia where everyone in Mississippi and all over has been vaccinated. And so now that we're going to, you know, just really celebrate that, that everyone now has, we've dispelled the myths. We've um, shared information that's medically accurate. We now have our spokespersons in every arena where people work, play, worship, have fun in all of the places that we go and, and have a good time. So we have these spokespersons in our community. Everyone's talking about the vaccine. It's now commonplace just as if we did all the vaccines when we took our babies when they were at their two-week shots and their six-week shots you know is now part of what we do so now what do we do next everyone is vaccinated how do we kind of carry on are there still some things that we still need to do when we're among those that are fully vaccinated that's everyone who's received both shots of pfizer both shots of Moderna and one shot of Johnson and Johnson. So are there still some things that we need to have in place for those who are fully vaccinated? Well, uh, I would be, I would really look forward to that utopia. Um, if we're in that utopia, then everything will be back to normal. Um, almost, uh, because uh, I say almost because we still have, um, we're still looking into new variants coming down the pike and uh, assessing what is our uh, level of uh, immunity to those variants. Uh, the vaccines have shown some good cross coverage with um, covering for those variants and with regards to severe disease and hospitalization, but that's still something that we're looking at moving forward. So, but um, in a in in uh, CDC released uh, guidelines, mask guidelines um, concerning those that are va vaccinated, and if you're in the setting with everyone that's fully vaccinated, then you probably don't need to wear your mask uh, if it's indoors. Um, so in a utopia where everyone is vaccinated, we may uh, return to a maskless society. Uh, but this this uh, last year has brought us into looking at how we live and how we um, interact in a different fashion. And I say this with regards to, obviously, if we're all vaccinated, then we might not need to do the six feet um, social distancing. Uh, we may be able to congregate as we would, uh, worship, play uh, in the past. But we are, we're still mindful that there are certain things that we, we cannot take for granted, like um, hand hygiene. We can't, moving forward, we can't take that for granted. Um, uh, respiratory hygiene, when you cough, you can't take that for granted because we don't know what would happen next or when there's next going to be another pandemic or this is just good practice to have moving forward. So um, those things I think are uh, markers that are here to stay. Um, the other things with social distancing and masking, those things may um, um, begin to leave once we cross that herd immunity um, level where the 
the number of people who are vaccinated have clearly exceeded um, 70% going on 90%. Um, so we may see those things uh, kind of level down. But um, underneath uh, uh, general cleanliness and hygiene, I think that's here to stay. I, I, I put that question there because I, I want people to understand that at this point, though, we're not there yet. We're not at that total utopia or where everyone is vaccinated. So we, we still want to make sure that we're practicing uh, some of those, those safe, practicing those safety measures that both of you mentioned. Uh, one other thing is, is um, as we have dispelled the myths, as we talked about, we've talked about, you know, uh, creating this vaccine was, was not unusual, you know, and that we did have parameters to make sure that it had safety protocols in place and that it was a good medically um, derived vaccine. Uh, what are the other issues? Because we know we have not met that herd immunity, you know, that utopia yet. What are some other things it, as a provider that you would like to see in place or you think need to be in place for us to make sure sure that this is accessible, the vaccines are accessible to everyone. What are some things that we have not mentioned yet uh, that we need to consider uh, for accessibility to everyone? I, I think we need to take into account those individuals that are homebound. Uh, there are people who simply can't get out, but that doesn't mean they can't potentially be exposed from people coming in. So devising strategies for vaccinating individuals who are homebound, uh, allowing for opportunities for transportation um, support, you know, church buses that pick up church members and carry them to a site, from pick them up from their home and carry them to a site where they can get vaccinated. Uh, a lot of older patients who may not drive they still need to be vaccinated or they simply may not get out of the house except for Sunday on church and are otherwise homebound. We need to take those individuals into account uh, in terms of being sure that they have access to vaccine at this time as well. Thank you. I'll, I'll pose another question to you, uh, Dr. Ezewani. Um, one of the things is that we're seeing that the age group is is 16 and up for the vaccinations. And so now as we're ending the summer and for some students, they have been virtual and for some students, they did go back, return to face-to-face. -to -face. We know that we do want, uh, there are individuals who are ready for schools to be reopened uh, completely and all students back into the classroom. Uh, what are some things that as medical professionals and public health practitioners, what are some things we need to do around educating parents and students uh, in this process around the vaccine? Um, you know, which vaccine is uh, approved right now? Because all three aren't for those 16 um, years old. So which, which vaccine is for those that are 16? Just kind of educating the parents and, and schools around that. All right. Uh, thank you. I think, first of all, it's, it's important to mention that um, I think Canada uh, Pfizer has uh, submitted the vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds now. 
And um, I think Canada has already approved for that vaccine to be administered to, to children that are ob- above 12 years old. And so uh, I know that the U.S. will be following suit really quickly. Um, so I do anticipate that before summer, we'll, we should see, not before summer, before the end of this month, if, if, um, or, uh, if we're being optimistic, um, they should be able to, um, uh, I think Pfizer will move ahead, the FDA might move ahead with, um, with uh, sanctioning that, uh, approving the 12 to 15 year old vaccines for uh, children. Um, but having said that, as of right now, uh, Pfizer is um, from 16 years old and above. Uh, that's the, the approved for, from 16 year old, whereas Moderna and um, Johnson and Johnson are approved for individuals older than from 18 and above. And um, so the, 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 there's no doubt that um, um, recent studies have shown that um, the vaccine has been highly efficacious in um, children, uh, people that are less than 16. Uh, from 12 to 15, there was 100% efficacy. And so um, with those studies, with this approval coming in, uh, the last you said, rightly, the conversation shifts to um, parents and um, and their children and ha- having letting them know the importance of getting their children vaccinated. Um, I think it still comes down to educating, uh, letting people know um, the the alternative the severity of um of that disease uh, i find that when you have people in their social circles uh kind of uh communicating to them uh, especially people that have had the vaccine and they didn't have any problems with it we should get those people to advocate within their spheres of influence and not only the people that have had the vaccine and didn't have problems but also people that have um, suffered from the disease and, and can actually give you a blow-by-blow blow account of how uh, terrifying that that disease is. And it's worth um, taking the vaccine to prevent that from crossing over to you or to people that you love. Um, I think one of the things that people tend to say is, oh, I'm young uh, or I'm in the age group where I don't think this is going to affect me that much. Uh, but you should always be thinking not just about yourself, but about people people who you love who are in that bracket that could be adversely uh, affected or have severe outcomes should they get that disease. So those are some of the conversations that we um, we should be bringing towards uh, uh, for people um, to really digest. And, and also just to reiterate uh, what was said earlier about access. We do know that there are some people in the population that they want the vaccines and they can't get it either because it's too far away, or it's uh, they don't get enough time off, or the factors of life have not allowed them the opportunity to make their way to that point. And we should also try to consider how to um, how how to get those people uh, get vaccines to those people. And that's um, really what we kind of touched on earlier: use, utilizing offices, uh, churches, and places where people congregate uh, to make the vaccine more accessible. Thank you, thank you. I know that we are uh, coming close to um, the end of our time, and I just want to just first thank 
Thank you all for such a, a great uh, conversation. I, I think we've covered quite a bit about the vaccine from how it was created, you know, easing individuals' minds about this was something quick that wasn't thought out. You know, science is always something working in the background, as I tell individuals, you know, uh, there's technology always moving forward for the next phase and always thinking ahead of what the possibilities could be. And so we're grateful for the vaccines and the ability to have not only one, we have three that we have available to citizens within our state and, and, and throughout. And so it's so important that um, you, the two of you went through very graciously about you know, how all three work and how readily they, they are available and accessible and how we can make them more accessible to those that may have limitations to getting the virus, the vaccine. Uh, the other uh, thing I want to mention is uh, what are some suggestions or any closing remarks that you would like to make? I, I think Dr. Thompson, we would be remiss not to mention the hold that they put on the J&J &J vaccine. You want people to make decisions, but you want them to make informed decisions. You want them to make decisions, not out of ignorance, but out of information. So as it relates to that, I think they did put the J&J &J vaccine on hold for a while. But that was because out of 7 million shots that had been administered of the J&J &J vaccine, six or seven females between the ages of 18 and 45, I think, developed a clot on their brain. It was cavernous sinus thrombosis. Uh, so in, in the way of caution, uh, the FDA decided to put J&J &J on hold while they looked at that information, evaluated it more closely, and after a short time, the decision was made from a scientific basis to put that vaccine back out there for those individuals. And anecdotally speaking, just from my experience, one of my patients who had yet to receive a vaccine who got COVID actually developed cavernous sinus thrombosis. She actually developed a, a blood clot on her brain not from a vaccine, but from the virus. So when I talk to people about taking the vaccine and they, they tell me what some of their concerns are and what some of their fears are, I remind them that the virus is so, it's like a wild card. Uh, we know that the vaccines for the most part are absolutely beneficial uh, with potential for minor side effects but we the with the virus itself being such a wild card to get that would potentially be more problematic for individuals than getting the vaccine so the fact that that vaccine was on hold briefly was more an abundance of caution than anything and i think that moving forward people need to be aware of that and know that the vaccines are safe that the virus is not mm -hmm. And it has the potential to do significant harm. Thank you, Dr. Um, Dr. Izawani, do you have any closing remarks? Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree um, uh, with Dr. Dr. Sullivan. And um, uh, also state that uh, for some select people, um, 
the vaccine does not cause COVID. The vaccine cannot cause COVID. Uh, like we stated earlier in the, the technology, it just helps the body build uh, a protein to recognize um, the vaccine, to recognize the virus. It does not have the ability to cause a COVID infection. Just wanna make that clearly stated because uh, some people think that they may get the COVID infection after getting the vaccine. Uh, and having said that, I agree with everything that has been said. And I only wanna add, don't hesitate, just vaccinate. Don't hesitate, just vaccinate. Keep your, yourself and your loved ones safe. Again, thank you both for um, coming with such a wealth of information that you've shared around the vaccine. I would just want to give you both an opportunity to just share with the listeners uh, how they may reach out to you if they have any questions about vaccinations or if they just need to find a good health provider. I know the two of you are, are great. And so I'll give you um, this opportunity to just share where you can be reached. Dr. Sullivan, I'll let you go first. I am in private practice here in Jackson. Uh, Mississippi at uh, Sullivan Family Medicine Clinic. Um, office number 601-373-2940. And that's that's where I am. Thank you, Dr. Izzawani. Any last closing of how they may reach you? Um, uh, yes, uh, I am in area, I work for Aaron E. Henry um, Community Health uh, Center here in Tunica, Mississippi. Uh, we can be reached with the office number 662-363-3656. Uh, that's 662-363-3656. Um, thank you. Thank you both. And I am Dr. Erica Thompson and I serve with Magnolia Medical Foundation. And we can be reached at 601-613-3737. I also would like to leave everyone with a number where you can uh, schedule and get information also at the COVID-19 hotline. And that assistance number is 1-877-978-6453. And on that number, you can ask questions. You can also schedule for vaccination sites or find out what sites are closest to you and go and get vaccinated. So I love, do not vac vaccinate, don't hesitate. So again, thank you all for joining us. It has been my pleasure hosting and thank you for the guests that have served with me this afternoon.